This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading destination for audiobooks and other digital formats. Audible has hundreds of titles covering both history and literature. With a free trial, you can download The Swerve, How the World Became Moderate, by Pulitzer Prize-winning scholar Stephen Greenblatt. He tells the story of the discovery of the last surviving text of On the Nature of Things. This was a work by the Roman poet and philosopher Lucretius, and it would go on to influence men like Botticelli, Galileo, and Jefferson. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash I take history sign up today. By getting a free trial, you would also be supporting this podcast. I Take History with My Coffee podcast, episode 20, Civitas. Now, this interest in republicanism is not new to the Florentine people, nor did it begin, as so many people think, only a short time since. Rather, this struggle against tyranny was begun a long time ago when certain evil men undertook the worst crime of all, the destruction of the liberty, honor, and dignity of the Roman people. At that time, fired by a desire for freedom, the Florentines adopted their penchant for fighting and their zeal for the Republican side and this attitude has persisted down to the present day. Leonardo Bruni, panegyric to the city of Florence, circa 1403. Welcome back to the I Take History with My Coffee podcast, and thank you again for continuing our exploration for the early modern period. In his landmark, The Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy, the Swiss historian Jacob Burckhardt gave us the first modern articulation of the Renaissance as a rebirth of civilization and as a distinct time. Renaissance humanism tore down the medieval world and gave birth to the modern age. And since the mid-19th century, Burkhardt's interpretation has dominated our popular views of the medieval and Renaissance period. Over the decades, medieval scholars have worked hard to debunk many popular myths, and modern scholarship has questioned whether or not the Renaissance of the 14th and 15th centuries can be rightly called a rebirth of classical learning. Many argue that other Renaissances occurred at earlier dates, especially in the 12th century, and therefore the Italian Renaissance is neither unique nor special. Many see the Italian Renaissance as simply the maturing of the culture of the High Middle Ages. 
And as far as humanism is concerned, it was not a philosophy, and it was not meant to replace medieval scholasticism in the studying of philosophy. It was more of a shift in attitude toward learning, art, literature, and history. It was a new culture, and Burkhart recognized why this new culture arose in Italy, particularly northern Italy, rather than elsewhere in Europe. Medieval Italy was a distinct region with unique characteristics that set it apart from the rest of Europe in several ways. Italy was a patchwork of multiple city-states and independent regions. Italy was the scene of constant invasion and political strife due to the power struggle between the Holy Roman Empire and the papacy, expressed in the long-standing rivalry between the Ghibellines and Goelfs. This was in contrast to many other European countries that were trending toward more centralized, stable monarchies. This meant Italian society attached itself more to local interests rather than larger national interests. Despite being impoverished and depopulated in the immediate wake of the collapse of the Roman Empire, Italy retained its urban culture. Late medieval Italian society was primarily an urban society. The growth of medieval Italian towns can be traced back to the 11th century, when the cities of northern Italy began to develop a form of self-governance known as the commune. The commune was a form of government in which the citizens banded together to form a self-governing body that made decisions for the city. The communes were developed by a coalition of merchants, artisans, and other urban elites who sought to defend their town and its trade routes. This meant power resided with merchants and tradespeople, rather than clerics and feudal lords. One of the earliest communes was that of Milan, which was established in 1056. Other cities, including Pisa, Florence, Genoa, and Venice, soon followed suit. The communes were typically led by a podesta, a magistrate appointed to govern the city. The communes were not without their problems, however. They were often riven by political factionalism and power struggles, and eventually powerful families or factions would control some cities. Nevertheless, the communes continued to grow and evolve, and by the 12th century, they became a dominant political force in northern Italy. The rapid growth of Italian communes was partly the result of what has been dubbed the Commercial Revolution between the 11th and 13th centuries. During this period, Europe experienced an expansion of trade networks that linked cities and regions across the continent and the wider world. Several factors, including population growth, agricultural productivity improvements, new technologies, 
such as the water mill and the heavy plow, and new forms of financial organizations, such as partnerships, credit arrangements, fueled this. Italian merchants and traders began to develop innovative financial instruments and practices that helped to facilitate long-distance trade and commerce. Italy was a melting pot of different cultures and ethnic groups due to its location at the crossroads of Europe and the Mediterranean. The Italian city-states attracted scholars, merchants, and artists from Europe and the Middle East, leading to a rich cultural exchange. Gothic art and architecture, mostly associated with the feudalism north of the Alps, never took root in Italy, whereas philosophy and theology were the specialties of the northern universities, like Paris or Oxford. Roman or civil law was the specialty of the Italian institutions, led by the University of Bologna. Italian jurisprudence adopted Roman law to Italy's commercial, social, and political life. Through Roman law, the city-states granted themselves a form of legitimacy. Italian society was characterized by Roman law, capitalism, notions of individual property, and the sanctity of private contracts. This created a need for groups of educated people, namely lawyers and notaries. These were the people who created the documents and interpreted the rules that made large-scale trading possible. In particular, the notaries drafted, reported, and certified legal contracts. These were the dictatores, who I mentioned in episode 19, the ones trained in Latin grammar and rhetoric. They needed a mastery of Latin, the language of the court, and the ability to embellish letters and other documents, sprinkling them with quotes from classical authors. This led to an interest in the language and literature of antiquity. It is perhaps the dictatores who helped inspire Petrarch and the early humanists. In this environment of urban expansion and commercial prosperity, along with a keen sense of their connection to antiquity, Italian humanism flourished. The city, the civitas, became the defining identity. The Italian city-states saw themselves as descendants of the Greek polis, like Athens, and they borrowed from the Roman Republic notions of citizenship. And from this, concept of civic humanism arose. In the first half of the 20th century, German-American historian Hans Behren developed the concept of civic humanism to describe a political philosophy that emerged in the Italian city-states during the Renaissance. According to Barron, civic humanism emphasizes the importance of civic virtue, active participation in public life, and the cultivation of intellectual and moral qualities to promote the common good. Civic humanists believed that individuals had a duty to use their talents and abilities 
to serve their communities and that this service was essential for the survival and flourishing of the state. For Baron, the crisis of 1402 in Florence played a pivotal role in the development of civic humanism. This crisis was precipitated by the external threat the Duke of Milan posed, seeking to expand his power and influence over Tuscany. The ruling oligarchy of Florence had been pursuing a policy of appeasement. This policy was unpopular with many of the common people, who saw it as a betrayal of Florentine interests. This led to internal conflicts over taxation, government representation, and the guild's role in political life. We'll go into more detail when I discuss the political history of Florence during the 15th century. Baron argued that this crisis was a turning point in the development of Renaissance political thought, as it led to a greater emphasis on the role of the citizen in public life and a rejection of the traditional aristocratic ideals of political leadership. During this crisis, a shift in thinking about man, society, and history occurred. Now, many historians since Barron have questioned the degree to which the crisis of 1402 precipitated this shift. Though these changes in thought and values had been discussed before, it is hard not to have a sense that they took on a new urgency at this particular moment in history. From this crisis, Leonardo Bruni emerges as the spokesman and archetype of civic humanism. Bruni was a leading intellectual and political figure in Florence. Bruni's career exemplifies the civic humanist ideal of the scholar-statesman. He was not only a scholar and a writer, but also held several important political positions in Florence and was actively involved in the city's political life. Bruni was born in Arezzo, Tuscany, about 1370. His father's death in 1386, followed by his mother's in 1388, left the young Bruni with few options. Fortunately, he showed command of the Latin language at a young age, and he was able to attend the University of Florence with the hopes of studying law. He was brought into the circle surrounding Coluccio Salutati, the Chancellor of Florence, guided the city through its conflict with the Duchy of Milan, and whom we will meet again in another episode. As a result, Bruni became associated with the second generation of humanists that had followed in Petrarch's footsteps. Bruni was also among the first generation of Italians to gain a command of the Greek language. In 1405, Bruni suspended his law studies, and upon the recommendation of Salutati, he became a papal secretary to Innocent VII. He remained a member of the papal curia for a decade, under four different popes. By 1414, he had returned to Florence. Over the next decade, he wrote many of his literary works 
1427, he was appointed by the Signoria, the Florentine City Council, to be chancellor. By his death in 1444, Bernie had served on several civil boards, delegations, and committees, some of which were supported by the powerful Medici family. Classical scholarship played a significant role for humanists like Bruni, who was particularly interested in studying Roman law and rhetoric. They saw these as critical elements of the Roman Republic's political and legal system. They believed that the study of these texts could provide a model for cultivating civic virtue and promoting active citizenship in their own time. Though Petrarch admired Cicero for his writing, he disdained Cicero's political activities as being beneath the great orator. On the other hand, Bruni saw Cicero as a model of combining the active and contemplative life. For Bruni, Cicero was, quote, the only man to have fulfilled both of these great and difficult accomplishments, end quote. Cicero not only studied philosophy, but also applied it in service to the Roman Republic. Quote, as in the public sphere, he served his country as consul and countless persons as orator. So in learning and letters, he truly served not only his fellow citizens, but in fact, all who use the Latin language. End quote. Bernie himself wrote in a clear and elegant style, drawing on the classical literary models of ancient Rome and Greece. He believed that language was an essential tool for conveying meaning and that a clear and elegant style could enhance the impact of his ideas. In his panegyric to the city of Florence, Bruni, with what can be argued to be an overabundance of chauvinism, heaps praise upon the city of Florence for its blend of classical and Christian cultures. He celebrates the civic virtues of its citizens, their love of liberty, and their commitment to the common good. Bruni argues that Florence's greatness is a result of the collective efforts of its citizens, politically, economically, and militarily. And he calls on them to continue to work together to maintain and improve their city. But Bruni's importance perhaps is in his History of the Florentine People, considered one of the most significant works of the Italian Renaissance. In contrast to earlier medieval histories, which often emphasized the role of divine providence and religious themes, Bruni's history focused more on Florentine society's secular and human aspects. He sought to understand the political and social factors that shaped the city's history. His history places a strong emphasis on the civic virtues of Florence. This focus on civic virtues reflected Bruni's humanist values, which emphasized the importance of civic engagement and the role of education in producing virtuous citizens.
the Roman historian Livy was also an important inspiration for Bruni. Bruni regarded history first among the humanities. Not only did one learn about civic pride from history, but it helped make political decisions. Echoing Livy, Bruni says, quote, Knowledge of the past gives guidance to our counsels and our practical judgment, and the consequences of similar undertaking will encourage or deter us according to our circumstances in the present. End quote. Tradition had traced the origins of Florence to the time of the Caesars, which implied in an imperial and, by extension, Ghibelline foundation. But Bruni takes a leap. He traced the city's origins to Sulla, under the Roman Republic, and thereby giving it a Goelph underpinning. Bruni sees Roman liberty and the Latin language decline after Caesar. They disappear during the barbarian invasions, and it is not until Dante and Petrarch that Bruni sees a revival of classical culture. He is regarded as the first modern historian to articulate three distinct historical periods, antiquity, the Middle Ages, and the modern. Most importantly, Rudy connects this classical revival with the revival of civic liberties, particularly Florentine republicanism. Rooney took Petrarch's cultural achievement and added the social and political aspects to it. There is broad agreement among scholars that Bruni played an important role in shaping the civic humanist ideal of active citizenship and civic virtue. His works were widely read by his contemporaries in Florence and beyond. He popularized the idea that political participation and civic virtue were essential for the community's well-being. This emphasis on civic virtues and the importance of the city-state as a political unit helped shape the way that historians thought about the Renaissance and the role of cities in developing modern political systems. We will now leave the realm of ideas and wade into the politics of the Florentine conflict with Milan the rise and fall of the Medici, and France's eventual invasion of Italy that caps off the 15th century. Along the way, we get into economics and the foundations of the modern banking system. As always, maps and other supporting resources for all episodes are listed in the episode description. In the meantime, for more historical content, please visit the I Take History With My Coffee blog at itakehistory.com and also consider liking the I Take History With My Coffee Facebook page. Feedback and comments are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com or I encourage you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also support this podcast by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash I take history. If you know anyone else would enjoy this podcast, 
please let them know. And thanks for listening.